The Jodcast, as photographed from space, with George Bendel, Claire Bretherton, Ian Harrison, Indy LeClerc, Ian Morrison, Josie Peters, and Hannah Stacy. The Jodcast, May 2015 edition. Hello, and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm George, and joining me in the studio today are Josie and Hannah. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, Indy interviews Professor Ignis Sneller about exoplanets, and Ian Morrison and Claire Bretherton take a look at what's happening in the May night sky. But first, before all of that, here's Ian with this month's news. In the news this month, Hubble turns 25, astronomers detect lunchtime, and dark matter is mapped. The Hubble Space Telescope celebrated 25 years since its launch this month, drawing tributes and plaudits from across the astronomical community. The famous space telescope lifted off from the Kennedy Space Center on the 25th of April 1990 and has since taken hundreds of thousands of beautiful and youthful astronomical images which have revolutionized our picture of the universe. It didn't always look good for Hubble, however. From its origins in the late 1970s, the telescope's launch was beset by delays, most notably due to the moratorium on space shuttle launches caused by the 1986 Challenger disaster. Even when it had made it into orbit, a notorious flaw in the construction of the primary mirror had it initially labelled a failure. Due to an incorrectly assembled piece of testing equipment, the mirror had been ground incredibly precisely, but to the wrong shape. This caused a spherical aberration in images sent back by Hubble, and whilst the images were still superior to those of a typical ground-based telescope, they were nowhere near the sharpness designed for and expected. Fortunately, a series of maintenance missions had always been planned for Hubble, and the first of these was able to install corrective spectacles in 1993 with spectacular results. Since then, the telescope has operated nearly continuously, with four further service missions refreshing its camera, spectrographs and computers. The images produced have been spectacular, as summarised by the many anniversary lists available online. But Hubble also released a special image of the Westerland 2 star cluster in the Carinae constellation, showcasing the high-resolution wide-field images which would simply not be possible to achieve when looking through the Earth's unstable atmosphere from the ground. Hubble has done excellent science both inside and outside of our galaxy, including on projects viewing the impact of the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet on Jupiter, views of the birthplaces of stars and planets within our galaxy, precision determinations of the rate of expansion of the universe and the deep field studies, staring at an apparently empty patch of the sky for a long period in order to gather the faint light from some of the earliest galaxies in the universe. These deep fields are particularly humbling, revealing the tiny patches of sky to contain thousands of galaxies billions of light years away, each hosting innumerable stars and planets. Even after 25 years, Hubble is still capable of groundbreaking science but is nearing the end of its time in space. The cost of its replacement, the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, which will have over five times the collecting area, is such that it has become difficult to justify service missions to Hubble, meaning a hard limit on its lifetime is set by either equipment failure or its gradual orbital decay, with best estimates on the end of the mission being between 2020 and 2030. For now, though, Hubble observing time remains one of the most prized goals of many astronomers. Also in the news this month, astronomers showed that a mysterious signal detected by radio telescopes actually has a banal origin, as emission from a local microwave oven. 
where signals known as peritons had been detected at telescopes including the Parkes radio dish in New South Wales, Australia, and were previously of unknown origin. However, work from Emily Petroff and collaborators was made available on the archive service this month, and has shown that they actually originate from impatient astronomers in the Parkes staff room, opening the door of a microwave oven before the timer had expired, releasing the burst of radio waves. Since their description in 2011, peritons have been detected in archival data and been an annoying foreground in the search for another mysterious radio signal, fast radio bursts, FRBs or FURBs. Peritons are regarded as less interesting by astronomers as they were known to have some kind of terrestrial origin, unlike the FURBs which are expected to originate outside of our galaxy. However, the two types of signal have a similar frequency signature, leaving lingering doubts in the minds of some that they could both be man-made. Peritons had still had a number of potentially exotic explanations, including as artefacts from ball lightning, meteor trails and large magnetic fields. In the end, the crucial clue about their true nature came from their distribution in time. That is, their appearance in the park's data was clustered strongly around lunchtime at the telescope. Following a hunch, Petroff and the paper's other authors were able to reproduce periton signals at will using two microwave ovens installed in staff kitchens at the observatory. Their paper contains surely some of the most incongruous discussions in an astronomical publication on the particulars of components and operations of two 27-year-old microwave ovens, the use of a ceramic mug of water as a test load, and the detection in data from 1998 of a cluster of peritons inferred to be from a hungry astronomer defrosting a meal with a small amount of foil caught in the oven door. The paper has generated much amusement, but is invaluable in showing a definite and distinct origin for the peritons, removing any lingering doubts that they were related to the more interesting, due to their extragalactic origin, Furbies. The microwave ovens are still in working order and have not been retired, but new guidelines for their use have been strictly implemented. And finally, the Dark Energy Survey, or DES, collaboration released their first map of the dark matter within our universe this month. The team used data from their dark energy camera at the Victor M. Blanco telescope in Chile to measure the shapes of thousands of distant galaxies. They then used the fact that the gravity of objects between us observers and those galaxies distorts by a tiny amount their apparent shape in an effect known as weak gravitational lensing. By looking at the shapes of thousands of galaxies in a 139 square degree patch of the sky, the international team were able to see where distortions were greatest, showing them where the mass was. This total mass is expected to be dominated by dark matter, which cannot be directly seen by other means. The resulting map is one of the largest so far made of dark matter, and proves that the DES team are capable of this very difficult science. In the coming years, they hope to expand their region to a full 5,000 square degrees of sky, enabling them to measure the growth of the structures in the dark matter over the history of the universe, and inferring the effect which the even more mysterious dark energy has had on that growth. Thanks for that, Ian. Now Indy interviews Ignis Sneller about the ground-based search for exoplanets. Today I'm with Professor Ignaz Schnellen from the University of Leiden. Hi, Ignaz. Hello. Uh, so you've come to um, Manchester today and you've given a talk about exoplanets. Um, so for starters, for our listeners, could you maybe give us a little bit of an overview of, of 
the current state of research in exoplanets and, and things like how we observe them uh, today. Yeah. So exoplanets, first of all, are planets that orbit other stars than the uh, than the sun. Um, so in general, it's it's very difficult to actually observe them because they are at such large uh, large distances. Uh, that's that's one thing, and then the, the second thing is that most exoplanets do not radiate any any light, mm -hmm. so they're much fainter than their host uh, host star. So uh, we most of the time we can't directly see planets. Uh, we have to use indirect method, mm -hmm. and uh, one way, uh, a very uh, successful way to actually do that is uh, using uh, uh, using the Doppler shifts of planets and maybe to try to explain that in, in sim simple terms yeah sure is uh, so a, a planet moves uh, of orbits an actual star and it uh, it goes around the star because uh, basically gravity from the star pulls on the actual planet yep um, but uh, yeah basically gravity works uh, works in in two two ways also the star is a little bit pulled towards the actual planet and uh, because of that, the star wobbles a little bit. Okay. And that wobbling we can measure because we can very accurately measure the, the actual velocity of the star. And uh, with that, we can then derive by, by measuring the, 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 the nicely varying uh, velocity of the star, we can induce the presence of an actual uh, planet. Okay. So that's that's that that's one way, and then the, the second way, and that's also the way which we use a lot in uh, in Leiden for our studies. And that is, if you're lucky, then uh, seen from the Earth, a planet moves in front of a star, and in that way it blocks uh, it blocks off a little bit of starlight, and it so it it, it temporarily dims uh, starlight. Mm -hmm. And these little dips uh, you can actually observe, and in that way also induce induce a planet. So I think that's the technique behind uh, some of these space telescopes, including Kepler, which we've mentioned a few times on the Jodcast, which, uh, yeah, that's which right. is looking for exoplanets. Yeah. So thanks to something like Kepler, we've now seen all sorts of different uh, exoplanet systems. Um, is there any sort of, are there any common characteristics between different types of exoplanets? Um, well, actually, what what ha what Kepler has shown us is that the that the variety is so enormous of exoplanets. If you look at the planets within our own solar solar system, uh, now you could argue that we more or less understand how planets are formed. You have the rocky planets uh, at closer distance to the to the to the sun. They have uh, the gas giants like you know Jupiter, uh, which are further away. And uh, we th more or less thought we understand, uh, or uh, we thought that that we understood why that was. Mm -hmm. And that is, you have to think about how how planets form. There is a disk of gas and 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 dust the, under its gravity. You know, planets form and they attract more and more uh, matter. And if they um, uh, if they are heavy enough, then they start to also attract a lot of gas. And then you build uh, a build. A gas giant. Sure. Um, so what Kepler has found is actually an enormous population of planets which are in between the rocky planets that we know in our solar system and the gas giants. So a bit of uh, super Earth or sub sub Neptune mm -hmm. uh, uh, mass, which also in uh, in density is a little bit in between the high density rocky planets and the very low density uh, gas gas giants. And we have no idea what they're chemical chemical buildup is for example these could be uh, water worlds or they could be rocky cores with large uh, gaseous uh, halos around them so it's very very interesting okay 
Um, and, and can you, is it possible to characterize the exoplanets more than, say, just their mass or, or just their orbit period, that sort of thing? Yeah, so what, for example, Kepler gives us, uh, so when you, when, you, when you take a transit measurement, you can measure the, the size of the planet. And if you now also measure this Doppler wobble, mm -hmm. then you can get the mass. So then you have a mass, a size, and you get an average density. So okay. then you can already start to say something about the composition. Now, a rocky planet would have a high density, uh, a gas giant, a low density. Um, but what is also interesting, if you take transit measurements, you can also learn something about the atmosphere. And that mm -hmm. is when the planet moves in front of the star, a little bit of starlight filters through the atmosphere. And that leaves uh, atmosphere, planet atmospheric absorption, for example, m absorption from molecular gases. Mm -hmm. And you can measure that by taking very accurate spectra, taking, taking, uh, yeah, taking the actual colors, measuring, measuring the colors. Yeah, how the light changes, the, yeah. how the light changes with frequency. Sure. Yeah. So obviously this seems like quite a difficult thing to do, and it seems natural to want to use a, a space telescope to do it. But in your talk today, you also suggested that you can do this very well with ground-based telescopes, despite the, the problems uh, encountered such as the Earth's atmosphere and that sort of thing. Yeah, so the first uh, observations uh, now been taking a bit more than a decade ago uh, were all from space, for example, with the Hubble Space Telescope and then some very nice observations with the Spitzer Space Space Telescope. Um, and people thought in general, yeah, the Earth's atmosphere is going to be such a problem, uh, it's really not possible to, to actually do this from the ground. But it turns out that actually if you use the the much larger telescopes we have on the ground, if you use them in the right way, mm -hmm. then you can actually still do these very accurate measurements from from the ground as well. Okay. And it, it's, you know, it's a very tiny signal. So we're talking about 10 to the minus 4, so uh, 0 0.0001 uh, as fraction of the actual uh, uh, light that actually changes wow. as function of wavelength, which you have to observe. Okay. Yeah. So so what kind of... What, what kind of molecules have, have been found so far in, in exoplanet atmospheres and, and how how many planets have you managed to sort of cover this technique yeah so to uh one of the one of the issues is that we need to a uh, uh, system to be very bright in the sky to be able to actually do this we need a lot of photons to be able to actually do these observations so we can only do a few planets there are actually yeah basically a handful of planets we can do these observations for and uh, so far uh, we have been able to see the, the so-called easy molecules. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's the molecules that give the strongest absorption uh, in these atmospheres, and that are carbon okay. monoxide and that are uh, water vapor. These okay. are two molecules that you expect to be uh, yeah, present in these. Uh, th these are very hot atmospheres. Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned you, you need a lot of a lot of photons. I mean, a lot of light. So, so what telescopes have you been using to do this? Uh, almost exclusively, we used a very large t telescope for this. This is an eight-meter telescope, which is in uh, which is in Chile. Uh -huh. uh, so, and uh, yeah, we have been lucky to uh, to get a lot of lot of observing time to actually do these observations. And we need a lot of observing time. So, you now we look at stars, which you can easily see uh, with your naked naked eye uh, in the exosky, and we still need three nights of observations to actually uh, get an exosignal signal out. So, uh, okay. And, and if you could maybe explain in, in quite simple terms, how do you actually extract this this tiny, tiny signal out of, I mean, I'm assuming there's a whole bunch of stuff that you see, and then you've got to figure out how to extract yeah. a small signal. Yeah, so um, the, the real trick what we use here is that we take uh, spectra at very high spectral 
resol- resolution. Okay. And what that means is that we measure the wavelength of the light very, very accurately. It's actually uh, in one part in 100,000. Okay. And what it means is, uh, um, the consequence of that is, is that we can measure, we are sensitive to the velocity of the planet. So if the planet is moving a little bit towards us, then that gives us a shift in wavelength. And uh, and actually what happens is when we observe for a whole night is that the that the velocity of the planet changes because it orbits the exo star. Sure. And that means is that these signals, the, the, the absorption from the planet is actually changing changing in exo wavelength. Right. And then although the planet signal is very weak, um, all the other uh, parts of the light that we observe do not change in extra wavelength. So we can filter out all the features that we see in the spectrum that, that do not change in wavelength, and we are left with only the component that actually change, and that is the exoplanet light. Oh, wow. So that's that's really great. That's um, that's a very clever way of doing it. Um, so as you mentioned, you've, you've, you've done this with a handful of planets for only a couple of molecules. So what are the future prospects of these kinds of detections? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, as you, as you can imagine, with uh, the current instruments and telescope, this is very hard and hard work, and we're really at the limit of what we can do. But on the other hand, yeah, we're only scratch, scratching the actual surface, right, of what yeah. you can know. We can only look at the hottest planets, the brightest planet in the sky. Um, so we really need a larger telescope, and that's where the European Extremely Large Telescope comes comes into view. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have sort of started building that now. Uh, it should be ready uh, in about uh, in about ten ten years, yep. and then we can start to probe uh, much much deeper and go to other planets and other uh, molecules. Yeah, because one of, one of the I think you also mentioned in your talk one of the kind of objectives of, of exoplanet hunters is is to find a kind of another Earth basically in this sort of habitable zone. So, um, how will the information from from these studies actually help us narrow down the search? Yeah, so what I see, uh, we learn a lot about the physics of these very hot uh, gaseous uh, uh, planets. But of course, uh, well, one of the reasons why I'm in this field is, you know, within my lifetime, I want to go to these uh, search for these Earth-like planets and and see, for example, maybe whether whether there is oxygen in their atmosphere, which which could be a sign of life. This is very difficult for for two reasons. One is that these planets, are, but the rocky planets like the Earth are much smaller, so they're, they're a factor 10 smaller in radius. So actually the planet disk is a factor of 100 smaller. And then these atmospheres are much cooler as well, and therefore that's, these atmospheres are much more difficult to observe. And uh, so there's really uh, several orders of magnitude. Uh, the observations have to, have to get better by several orders of magnitude. But there is, luckily there's another... Uh, road to go on and that is um, the signal can be boosted significantly again if you go to stars which are smaller Uh, the sun is a relatively large star and actually uh, the majority of stars in the milky way is much smaller these are uh, red uh, dwarf stars they're much cooler and much smaller they can be 10 times smaller than the earth Uh, they radiate a thousand times less energy and it also means that uh, you know you can look for planets with the right temperature much closer to that to the to the to the star, uh-huh. meaning that you can that makes these kind of observations of that would make these kinds of observations hundreds of factors of hundreds easier again. So on one side it's a thousand times more difficult, but it's also getting then a hundred times more easy. So then actually it's not that much more difficult than the kind of observations we do actually now. Okay, so it kind of balances out, and uh, yeah, and once yeah. you once you start finding more like 
once you have a, a nice list of, of all of these tour stars, then potentially something something might come up. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much for answering all of our questions, and uh, hopefully we'll see you sometime soon on the Jodcast. Thank you. Thanks for that, Indy. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And we'll start with Hannah. So my odd and end is a new way of detecting exoplanets which combines the Spitzer Space Telescope with ground-based optical telescopes to um, look for microlensing events in the galaxy. And microlensing is an event in which a star passes in front of another star and its gravity acts as a lens to magnify and brighten the more distant star. And so if the foreground star happens to have a planet, then the planet causes a little blip in the magnification of the background star. Uh, so this has in the past been used to detect exoplanets. About 30 planets have been detected with microlensing. However, it's difficult to find the distance to these stars. So this method of using the ground-based and space telescope can take advantage of the parallax due to the different vantage points of the Earth-based telescope and the space telescope, which is about 120 million miles away and orbits the Sun. So these different vantage points create a parallax and a time delay between the, the uh, magnification events, which gets you a distance to these exoplanets. Oh, that sounds really clever. So is micro-lensing, so that's when it's just with stars, and then normal lensing is when it's with galaxies? Right, yeah. It's yeah. Um, it's sort of a this transit event as the uh, foreground star passes the background star. So with galaxies, you get a very large mass, and that can bend light a whole lot. With stars, you don't have quite as much mass, even though it's a much smaller object. You don't have as much uh, mass. You see a slight increase in the uh, brightness of the uh, object behind the star from the gravitational lensing event. It's not as dramatic as with a galaxy or with a cluster of galaxies, which is the other place where you will see very strong lensing. So they've detected their first exoplanet through this method. It's a, um, a planet that's about half the mass of Jupiter, and it's in a solar system that's about 13,000 light years away, so it's one of the most distant planets that we've discovered. So it's quite a promising new method for detecting exoplanets. So these new discoveries of exoplanets can help us understand how concentrated and how distributed um, exoplanets and planets are within the uh, galaxy, so if they're a bit more numerous close to the centre of the galaxy or further away. So we don't know if planets are more common in the central area or in the in the disk of our galaxy. This is actually uh, one of the things which I thought was kind of interesting about this was the um, because um, the stars that you find in the bulge of uh, the Milky Way as well as the bulge of other galaxies tend to be older, redder stars as well. And so it would be kind of interesting to see if you see more exoplanets around the bulge stars versus disk stars. And this may tell us about when the planets form in terms of uh, uh, when the, in terms of the evolution of the galaxy and in terms of the evolution of the universe as a whole as well. But uh, it would be certainly easier to observe exoplanets close to the centre of the galaxy because they're much more densely packed. So there's more microlensing events that occur. So it's quite tricky how they um, 
had to organise the observations of the microlensing events because the it's the ground-based telescope that first observes the microlensing event, and then that has you have to quickly scramble the Spitzer team to start observing the uh, microlensing campaigns pretty quickly as well. Yeah. It's quite interesting as well if we can put a link to the to the image on the website because most of the other known exoplanets from other discoveries are all in a different field of view. So well, you've got these two comparisons that yeah, you can make. Kepler uh, observed a specific patch of sky and found lots of exoplanets, but lots of exoplanets in one specific patch of sky. So if we begin talking about where exoplanets are in the uh, Milky Way, uh, we aren't going to get the whole picture from just the Kepler mission, which may be a reason to ask NASA or ESA for more missions to observe planets in the future. I think there are a number of different um, methods that you can use for detecting exoplanets. I think this one is one that you can seem to be able to observe pretty distant exoplanets with. So the thing that I brought to odds and ends today is related to ALMA, uh, partly because I'm biased. I work on ALMA, and so I t- tend to pay attention a lot to stuff that happens on ALMA. And in fact, uh, for those of you who've been listening for a long time, it's worth noting that at one point we're restricted on how much we can talk about ALMA. But I haven't been on the show for a while, so I can talk about ALMA as far as I know. Last month, uh, ALMA released a press release uh, talking about the results from the Very Long Baseline campaign to translate that antennas in ALMA uh, can be arranged in uh, different patterns. So there are 50 of these antennas in uh, the ALMA array in Chile, and you can either put them all really close together, or you can spread them really far apart, a few kilometers apart, in fact. And most of the observations that have been done so far had been done with the antennas either really close together or spread out a little bit, but not that much. Last year, there was a campaign to see what ALMA could do if you spread out the individual antennas as far as possible. And they produced a series of images and a series of scientific papers to go with those images as a result of that campaign. So last year, there were images of HL Tau that were published from this campaign. HL Tau is a pro-planetary disk, so it um, contains a nice disk of gas and dust. So what they discovered with the OMA Long Baseline campaign is if you spread out the telescopes, you can actually get sharper images which show you smaller scales. And looking at HL Tau, uh, they discovered that uh, you could actually see these really thin ring patterns inside the proplanetary disk. And this really excited astronomers and also kind of confused astronomers because this was something that people didn't expect. Now, even though the published image of HL Tau sort of shows their alternating rings around uh, the the uh, protostar at the center of the object, the dark bits aren't actually completely black, but they're actually just kind of darker dust versus brighter dust in the uh, brighter ring patterns. And so astronomers think this may actually be because the dust is clumping together in places, and so that's why you're getting the alternating bright and dark bands uh, within the disk. 
Now, that image was last year. Last month, uh, they released a series of other images as well. Two of the highlights were a gravitationally lensed galaxy called SDP-81. It also has a much longer name with lots of plus and minus signs, which I'm not going to attempt to read out. This was a thing which looked like a fuzzy, lopsided blob before Alma looked at this with very long baselines. And again, by spreading out the telescopes, you can make a much sharper image. And in this case, um, they were able to get an image where you can actually see that the gravitational lens looks like a circle, a very thin circle, in fact. Not a perfectly uniform circle, but it's a very nice circular shape, nonetheless. We'll try to get links uh, on the website that goes along with this Jodcast as well. One of the impressive things about this is that by being able to make a much higher resolution image of this gravitational lens, you can actually tell what's going on in more detail in the galaxy which is being lensed. So you can actually see that the galaxy is somewhat extended, and you can actually see that the interstellar gas within the galaxy is in a slightly different place than the interstellar dust within the galaxy. One of the other highlights uh, from the long baseline results as well was Alma was able to image the asteroid Juno. Uh, and this is an asteroid which gets number three. So this is one of the first asteroids discovered. It's also one of the largest ones in the asteroid belt. And uh, the people using Alma were able to watch Juno rotate. They were able to see brightness differences on the asteroid as well. And there's a lot of discussion in the scientific article about this, but astronomers think that stuff like this uh, will be able to allow them to look at asteroids and uh, they'll be able to measure the rotation rates of the asteroids. They will even be able to analyze the soil to some degree. Uh, they'll be able to tell you what is in the composition of the surface of uh, these asteroids as well. So all of these papers are now uh, on their way to being published, and we'll provide uh, a link to the press release, in any case, with uh, some of the highlight pictures, including an animation of Juno. So with back to the lens, is that an Einstein ring then? Is that all the way around? It's, I don't know what the technical definition is of an Einstein ring, but it does go all the it's, way it's around. It's a near-perfect Einstein ring, isn't it? Well, like I said, this has been imaged before, but before it looked like a blurry, lopsided blob, where because it was unusually bright in uh, the submillimeter radiation that Alma observed, it people could figure out that it was probably a lens. But being able to see the nice ring like this with the uh, Alma with the telescope spread out really far so it can do really high-resolution imaging was really impressive. You can see... Um... A lot of detail in it as well and there was some spectral imaging as well of it i think oh lots of some yeah co and various star formation traces it's, um really interesting uh, that's how they can tell the dust and gas are in different places is by looking at stuff like the uh, carbon monoxide lines and they've ever been able to work out how far away the lensed galaxy is so the redshift of the lensed galaxy is Z equals 3.042. I can't readily translate that into light years or something that 
the average person would understand, um, but that's fairly far away. It's not as far away as like some of the most distant things that people have found, but uh, I certainly anticipate that there are a lot of people who are currently asking that Alma look at even more distant gravitationally lensed galaxies uh, with the very long baselines so that they can produce similar images to this one. Because yeah, there are some that are at redshift 7, aren't there? Is that the furthest that's been detected? No, think? not no. even that. But, I mean, a, a redshift of 3 you would correspond to when the universe was a quarter of the size of it is now. So that's interesting. I think the furthest is something like 11, 10 or 11. Which is, Have uh, they done 10 or 11? I, I did a, a, an odd end on it once. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. So now for my odd and end, it's a bit interactive. Um, so if anyone follows the Twitter account of the International Space Station, you will see that regularly they post lots of beautiful pictures of planet Earth. And one of the new astronauts that's recently boarded the ISS has decided to make a game out of it. So if you have another interest apart from astronomy, and if that interest is geography, then this might be the game for you. So what this astronaut is doing, he's called Scott Kelly. He is taking a picture of the Earth not every day, but at regular intervals, I think. And if you are the first person to identify what country or part of Earth he's taken a picture of, you can win a signed copy of that picture. So if you do want to play along, uh, the website or his Twitter handle is uh, twitter.com forward slash station CDR Kelly. And you'll also get updates on what else Scott Kelly is doing. Now he's recently launched into space with um, Russian cosmonauts Mikhail Kornienko and Gennady Padalka. And Kelly and Kornienko are both spending one year in space. So usually when uh, astronauts go to the ISS, they only spend six months there. But Kelly and Kornienko are going there to test more about the sort of the psychological and the medical effects of spending that long in space. And so they can develop sort of ways to reverse any sort of negative effects that may happen to them and just find out exactly it, how it affects human beings. So they're very brave. <laughs> I don't know if I could spend a year in space. <laughs> it's quite dangerous, isn't it? Like you end up with very little bone mass if you've spent a lot of time in space, is that right? And your muscle yeah. mass deteriorates. Well, they, yeah, they I was have, just about yeah. to say that your yeah. muscle mass deteriorates as well. Right. well. Yeah, but you, they, they're scheduled to do at least two hours of exercise a day yeah. to maintain it. Well, but still, it's a yeah. major challenge to uh, stop from losing muscle mass. But yeah, so that would be really interesting. So then I think they're going to sort of pass that sort of information on to if they ever put a human on Mars or things like that, what you would actually have to do to help combat all these issues. Oh, especially with the long travel time to Mars. Yeah, yeah, it does take a long time. But yeah, expect lots of beautiful pictures. They circle the earth 16 times a day so he's got lots of opportunities to take a nice one and now going from looking from space to earth to looking from earth to space here's ian morrison with this month's night sky the night sky for may 2015 this is an interesting month it's between what we might call the winter and early spring sky when we have the constellations of orion and taurus and gemini and above them our Riga, they'll now be setting over in the west soon after sunset. Leo, over to the left of Castor and Pollux in Gemini, is still up over to the left of that. There's actually quite a bright star called Arcturus, the fourth brightest star in the sky, actually, 
which is the brightest star in Bootes. Between Leo and Arcturus is a fairly blank part of the sky. It's actually called, though, the realm of the galaxies, because with a reasonable-sized telescope, almost anywhere you look there, you'll find galaxies. Indeed, there are 18 of Charles Messier's objects. It's looking towards the centre of the Virgo cluster. Virgo is the constellation just below Coma Berenices. And it's, in fact, the heart of the Virgo supercluster, of which our own little local group of galaxies is an outrider. Rising over in the east, as the evening draws on, we have the Summer Triangle, made up of the stars Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus, and Altair in Aquila, the Eagle. Between Arcturus and Vega is the constellation Hercules, and the four brighter stars make up what is called the Keystone. It's slightly wider, sort of not a square, but wider at the top than at the bottom. If you find that, and you move up about two-thirds of the way on the right-hand side, with binoculars, you might well find a little fuzzy blob, certainly if it's a dark sky. And that's, in fact, a lovely globular cluster called M13, another of Messier's objects. High overhead is the plough, part of the constellation Ursa Major, with its two stars, Merek and Dubhe, acting as the pointers towards Polaris. On the other side of Polaris, relatively low above the northern horizon, we have the W shape of Cassiopeia. So, if one cares to look for a while, soon after sunset, and then wait a while, perhaps, and get up later in the night, there's quite a lot to see in the heavens. And in fact, our skies are blessed with three really nice planets this month. So let's have a look at them. Well, Jupiter, it's now somewhat past its best, but it still stands out in the south to southwest at nightfall. As it gets further away from us, its brightness falls slightly from magnitude minus 2.1 to minus 1.9. And of course, the angular size will drop too, from 38 to 35 arc seconds. But that's still quite a lot. It's spending the month in Cancer in its eastwards progress towards Leo. With a small telescope, you should easily be able to see the equatorial bands in the atmosphere, sometimes the Great Red Spot, and up to four of the Galilean moons. On the night sky page of the Jodrell Bank website, I have two little highlights to do with Jupiter. The first tells you when the great red spot is on the meridian facing towards us, so it's easiest to see. The number of those possibilities is now reducing because the number of hours of darkness is getting less. But also, later in the month, on May the 20th, starting at about 10pm in the evening, we have some very nice events across the face of Jupiter. First, there is the shadow of Ganymede passing across the face. And that is followed by transits of first Callisto and then Io. And I've given a diagram of that again on the Night Sky website. Saturn reaches opposition this month. And that's when it's approximately due south at midnight UT or 1am BST. So it'll be visible for most of the hours of darkness. And I'll say more about that in the highlights of the month. Mercury passed behind the Sun, that's called superior conjunction, on the 10th of April and can still be seen in early May, about an hour after sunset, a few degrees west of the Pleiades cluster in Taurus. 
It will gradually rise higher in the sky until the 7th of May, when it reaches what is called greatest elongation east, 22 degrees away from the sun. As May progresses, its brightness falls from minus 0.4 at the start of May, that's quite bright, down to plus 3 towards the middle of the month when it disappears into the sun's glare. Again, the angular size is not great, increases in fact from 6.8 arc seconds at the beginning of May up to about 11 arc seconds before it's lost in the sun's glare. Mars, having graced our evening skies for many months, is now finally sinking into the sun's glare. You might just be able to glimpse it around the first of the month, about 9 degrees below the Pleiades cluster, shining at magnitude plus 1.4. But you'll need a very low western horizon to do that. I think it's going to be quite difficult. The angular size is just 3.8 arc seconds, so you're not going to see any details on its illuminated salmon pink surface. Venus is still shining brightly at magnitude roughly minus four all month, the brightest object in the sky apart from the moon. It's dominating the western sky after sunset. It starts the month in Taurus, but climbs up to Gemini, passing the star Epsilon Geminorum on the 16th. It will actually reach greatest elongation from the sun on the 6th of June. It brightens from minus 4.2 to minus 4.4 during the month. As it does so, though, its angular size increases from about 16 to 22 arc seconds. And the illuminated phase shrinks from 67 to 53%. So we've certainly got Jupiter and Venus in the early evening and Saturn later on, as we shall see. Well, what about the highlights? Well, May is certainly our best month to view Saturn. It reaches opposition on the 23rd of May. So it'll be visible for most of the hours of darkness. The beautiful ring system has now opened out to about 24 degrees, virtually as open as they ever become. It brightens to magnitude naught during the month. And that's the brightest it's been for about eight years, largely due to the fact that the ring system is now quite open. Its globe spans 18 and a half arc seconds across, whilst the ring system spans 42 arc seconds. Around opposition, that's a few days around the 23rd of May, there's an interesting phenomenon. It's called the Seeliger effect. When we're looking directly away from the Sun towards Saturn, the shadows projected by the myriads of particles of ice in the ring system fall directly behind them, so do not fall on other particles, so reducing their apparent brightness. Thus, for a few days around opposition, the ring system appears somewhat brighter than normal. That'd be nice to look out for. Saturn is moving in retrograde motion, that is westwards, away from the double star Beta Scorpii, back towards Libra, which it reaches on the 12th. If only Saturn were higher in the ecliptic, its elevation never gets much above 18 degrees from our northern climes, and so the atmosphere will hinder our view of this most beautiful planet. In late April, I was in the Sahara Desert at a latitude of plus 29, so Saturn was about 23 degrees higher in the sky, and on a night of superb seeing, looked absolutely wonderful. On May the 2nd, you might, as I mentioned earlier, be able to spot Mercury in the Pleiades cluster. 
Given the low horizon in the west-northwest and clear skies, you might find it halfway between the Pleiades cluster on the right and the Hyades cluster on the left, with the star Aldebaran lying between the Hyades cluster and us. And you may possibly spot Betelgeuse, the top left-hand star of Orion, to the left of the Hyades cluster before they set. There is a meteor shower this month, on May the 6th, before dawn. It's called the Eta Aquarid meteor shower. It's actually one of the finest showers you see in the southern hemisphere. But for us, the radiant in Aquarius is very low above the horizon. But it may well be that you can glimpse some of the meteors in the pre-dawn sky, looking towards the southeast about 90 minutes before dawn. There'll be a waning gibbous moon but over to the west, that will hinder our view somewhat, so perhaps only the brightest of the meteors will be seen. On May the 21st and 22nd, about an hour after sunset, you can see Venus with a crescent moon. Venus will be seen lying below the stars Pollux on the left and Castor on the right in Gemini. On the 21st, the crescent moon will lie to the lower left of Venus, whilst on the 22nd, it will actually be almost at the same elevation over to its left. On the 23rd and 24th of May, just two days later, one can see the moon below Jupiter. Given a clear sky and again a low western horizon, about 10 o'clock you should be able to see both Jupiter and the crescent moon below. They both lie below the mane of Leo the lion. On the 23rd, the moon, having moved higher up and to the left in the sky, will lie over to Jupiter's left. I mentioned that it was the opposition of Saturn around the 23rd of May. And you can see it at around 11pm looking in the southeast and then higher in the sky later in the evening, above the fan of three stars that form the head of the scorpion. Sadly again, because it's relatively low elevation, it won't be too good, but let's hope for a nice clear sky with good seeing to observe it with. And finally, Comet Lovejoy has been in our skies for many months. It's still visible as a faint fuzzy ball. I observed it, in fact, from the Sahara Desert just a few days ago. But on the 28th, it passes within a degree of Polaris. So it's actually going to be quite easy to find, perhaps with 15 by 20 or 10 by 50 binoculars if it's a really dark night, or preferably perhaps a small telescope. Simply find Polaris, have a reasonably wide field of view, and on the chart on the night sky page, I show you where it will be relative to the star. Perhaps a last chance to pick out Comet Lovejoy easily. Well, there's quite a lot to look for, I think, this month. There's rather less darkness now, but there's still quite a number of things we can enjoy looking at. I wish you well. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Southern Hemisphere, here's Claire Brotherton with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, and welcome to the May Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. It's a good month for exploring our own solar system this month, with three bright planets visible in our early evening skies. Stunning Venus, the brightest object in the sky after the sun and moon, will be the first to appear, sitting low in the northwest as the sun sets and the sky begins to darken. Venus can reach an apparent magnitude of minus 4.6, bright enough to cast shadows here on Earth. 
There are a number of reasons why Venus appears so bright. It is closer to the sun than we are, and also one of Earth's nearest neighbours. But more importantly, it is covered in a thick, dense carbon dioxide atmosphere with clouds made of sulfuric acid. These clouds reflect almost 70% of the sun's visible light that falls on them, making Venus so bright you can only really mistake it for the headlights of an aeroplane. The thick atmosphere of Venus also has another effect. It traps the sun's heat that does reach the surface and prevents it from escaping back into space. This creates a runaway greenhouse effect, making Venus the hottest planet in the solar system, with an average surface temperature of 462 degrees C, despite being further away from the sun than Mercury. In the north is Jupiter, appearing soon after Venus, just to the left of the upside-down question mark that forms the head of Leo the Lion. At the beginning of the month, Jupiter sets around midnight, but by the end of May it will be dropping below the horizon around 10pm. Jupiter is always worth a look through a small telescope or good binoculars, revealing up to four of its large Galilean moons. The moon passes close to Jupiter on the 24th of the month. Saturn is rising in the east, officially in the constellation of Libra, but lying very close to the line of three stars marking the pincers of Scorpius, with a bright orange star Antares a little further to the right. Saturn reaches opposition on the 23rd of May, when it will be at its closest and brightest in the sky, and high in the north at midnight. Saturn is just 1,340 million kilometres away this month, and is particularly good for observing, with its rings almost at maximum tilt. On the 6th of May, the waning gibbous moon passes within 2 degrees of Saturn. This also coincides with the peak of the Eta Aquarids meteor shower, caused when the Earth passes through the trail of debris left behind by the famous comet Halley. The shower appears to radiate from a point near the fourth magnitude star Eta Aquarii, one of the brightest in the zodiac constellation of Aquarius representing the water bearer. The radiant won't rise until around 2am here in New Zealand, so the best time to go meteor spotting is in the few hours before sunrise. At the shower's peak, you may be able to spot up to a meteor a minute, many of them fast and bright and leaving glowing trails behind them. However, with the moon still close to full and not setting until after sunrise, viewing conditions will not be ideal this year. A second minor meteor shower peaks on the 13th of the month. The Alpha Scorpids radiate from the area around Antares close to Saturn, which is well placed for viewing throughout the night. And with the thin crescent moon, viewing conditions will be much better than earlier in the month. Sadly, this is a very minor shower, peaking at just 5 meteors an hour from a dark location, so it's unlikely to put on much of a show. A little below and to the left of Saturn, in the constellation of Serpens, is the globular cluster M5, or NGC 5904. At magnitude 5.7, this will be tough to spot with the naked eye in anything but the darkest conditions, but with binoculars it's easy to find, although you will need a small telescope to begin to resolve it and start to pick out a slightly elongated shape and a few edge stars. With a calculated age of around 13 billion years, M5 is one of the oldest globular clusters known, and at 165 light years in diameter and containing hundreds of thousands of stars, it is also one of the largest. It also contains 105 known variable stars, with the brightest and most easily observed variable 42 changing from magnitude 10.6 to 12.1 in just under 26.5 days. M5 is around two-thirds of the way from Antares to Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Boates, which rises in the northeast after dark. 
Although similar in mass to the sun, Arcturus has used up all of the hydrogen in its core and expanded to become an orange giant. It currently has a radius around 25 times and a luminosity around 170 times that of the sun and is one of the most luminous stars in our solar neighbourhood. At just 37 light years away, Arcturus is the brightest red star and the fourth brightest star in the nighttime sky at magnitude minus 0.04. Above Arcturus is the bluish-white giant Spica, the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, and the 15th brightest in the nighttime sky, at magnitude 1.04. Spica is in fact a binary star, with a period of just four days, one of the nearest massive binary systems to our Sun. Its name comes from the Latin for ear of grain, and in both Greek and Roman mythology, the star and constellation are associated with the goddess of the harvest. On the opposite side of the sky, we have a chance to spot a comet this month. Comet C 2015-G2 Master is expected to reach peak brightness on the 14th of May, when it is just 70 million kilometres, that's less than 0.5 AU, from the Earth. It is expected to reach a magnitude of 5.4, easily in reach of binoculars and possibly visible to the naked eye from a dark location, although its low surface brightness will make it harder to spot. At its closest, the comet will pass within 0.8 AU of the Sun, reaching perihelion on the 24th. At the beginning of the month, the comet passes through Sculptor before moving into Fornax from the 9th to the 14th. It continues its journey through Eridanus, Lepus and Canis Major, and on to Monoceros by the end of the month. On May the 14th, the comet will be visible above the southwestern horizon after dusk, setting just after 9pm. Wishing you clear skies from the team here at Carter Observatory. Thanks for that, Claire. And now on to the feedback. We have quite a bit of feedback uh, this month. We have a postcard, a fairly long email, and a fairly long Facebook post. So I'll start with the postcard. Now our postcard features a very nice multicolor image of the Orion Nebula. And says, hi, Jodcasters. Love the show. I laughed out loud at the April 1st edition. I have a question. If you were inside one of the great nebulae, would you see these colors or could you only see them with long exposures? Thanks. Ben Harding, Dover, UK. So, and just to refer to the colors that he's referring to, if you, uh, again, look at the uh, image that's on the uh, postcard, or just uh, your standard image of the Orion Nebula on the web, uh, there are lots of reds and pinks, and uh, there's a bright yellow thing in the center, and there's sort of blue at the edges. It's quite it, fitting that it's a Hubble image that's been sent. Mm, yes, yeah. very appropriate. Oh, indeed. Um, however, if you were to get a 8-inch telescope and set it up uh, in the dark site and look at the Orion Nebula, it would actually look kind of greenish. And the reason why it looks greenish instead of sort of red is because, uh, partly because your eyes are more sensitive to the green light that's coming out of the Orion Nebula rather than the red light. The gas in the Orion Nebula doesn't emit light at all colors, but actually emits individual uh, lines of color in the spectrum. So uh, the specific color that you would see from the Orion Nebula would actually be primarily from oxygen producing 
a shade of green uh, from the nebula. And this would be true if you looked at other nebulae as well. Um, if you had a really large telescope, you may begin to pick out more colors, although uh, you also start getting into potential psychological effects as well, where you begin to think that the object should look red, and therefore you be begin to actually see red or perceive red. For the same reason that uh, Percival Lowell thought that he saw canals on Mars is because he was kind of expecting to see canals on Mars. And then he told other astronomers, and other astronomers began to see canals on Mars. And then, like, uh, people took photographs and couldn't see canals, and there weren't any canals. The same thing with nebulae. It's like, if you think you'll see red, you'll actually see red. But the original question on the postcard was, well, what if you were sitting in the Orion Nebula? Well, if you were sitting in one of the really dust-rich parts of the Orion Nebula, you might not see much of anything. So if you look at the image, uh, there are, like, dark parts with lots of dust where it turns very black, and uh, potentially if you sat in these really dark parts, you wouldn't even see the really hot blue stars which are being formed in the center of the Orion Nebula. So instead of taking that cheap way out of the question, though, suppose you were a uh, rather short distance away from the Orion Nebula, would you be able to see the same colors? And uh, my best guess on that is that the uh, answer is no, it would still look kind of greenish. And uh, this has to do with the fact that this is a broad object that is producing light. And so um, if you had a point source that was producing light, like an individual star, then as you get closer to a star, the star looks brighter. But if you have like an extended thing, like a nebula that's producing light, then when you get closer, uh, then the uh, total amount of light would seem to get larger. But then your light is spread out over an area which is sort of compensates for the fact that you're closer. So, for example, if you got twice as close to your Orion Nebula, you would potentially see four times as much light, but then the Orion Nebula would look four times larger. So it would look like the same brightness. And so for this reason, I think you would tend to see uh, the Orion Nebula look about the same brightness and therefore look about the same shade of green as you would see from Earth. There's no disrespect to the color green, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. green is a very nice color we've had <laughs> debates previously on this podcast about our favorite astronomical colors and the fact that my favorite astronomical color or one of them is uh k uh which is an infrared color was it don't they choose some of the specific colors with hubble though because you can see some of the features better so when it's with the red and the pink then you can more things stand out than if you left it as the green mm -hmm. so that tends to be why they choose the colors that you see the most instead oh, of the ones that, that's original. Part of it's also just to make it pretty, too, to uh, actually... Um, they could try showing it in, like, uh, levels which would match what the human eye would be sensitive to, but then it might look kind of green. Whereas if you actually want to see more structure, you may want to enhance the red, like you just said. The other thing, too, is that some of the filters are designed to pick out light from specific types of atoms inside uh, nebulae, so uh, they could have a filter which is designed to pick out just ionized hydrogen gas, for example, and that would look uh, like a shade of red, and so that could look very different from 
for example, a standard red filter. This week we have an email from Gael, who says, Hello, Christina, Ian, Claire, JC and Indy. I like my new nickname. Uh, I looked for all your names but couldn't find a complete list, not even on Facebook. You should have one. I wanted to write your names. I listen to you regularly. I'm in Montreal and I love the Jodcast. Christina seemed so disappointed not to have any mail when I listened to April 2015's show yesterday that I decided to write to you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. There's lots of exclamation marks and a smiley face. I really enjoy the show and I learn a lot, so I'm very grateful. You are all adorable. Jod on. And congratulations for the wonderful idea you had of creating the Jodcast. What a lovely positive message. Oh, Thank lovely. you very much, Gael. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun recording the, the April 2015 show. I hope you still recognise me with my astrological voice. Um, but it's great to hear that you enjoy it so much. Thank you very much for your yeah, feedback. I, I just want to point out that uh, JC and uh, some of the other people as well put in a lot of effort into uh, the Astrology Jodcast. So we have a Facebook message as well from Andrew Horner, who writes, What a great addition from start to finish. The opening sequence from the Apollo 11 landing always gives me goosebumps no matter how many times I hear it. The interviews with Matt Taylor and Buzz Aldrin were both revealing in their different ways. It was good also to hear from Jamie Sloan talking about the Discovery Centre's education events as I take my daughter there most school holidays. On our Easter visit we had the pleasure of talking to Jodcasters Mark Perver and Ian Morrison. We also took the photo in, in the education room which nicely draws all your themes together. Thanks for that Andrew. That's, um, I think you were referring to the previous episode of... The April Jodcast. Extra. The April Extra, yeah. Um, yeah, and just to point out, the uh, photo, uh, for those of you who can't see it right away, is of the daughter standing uh, next to a footprint that's been taped to the ground showing Buzz Aldrin's footprint on the moon. And, and thank you for all the retweets on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. And thanks to Professor Ignis Sneller for the interview. The editors were Adam Avison, Indy LeClerc, and Mark Perver. The producer was Indy LeClerc. Until next time... Jordan! Jordan.